Welcome to the podcast. It's the worst territory in the world. Personalities, history, and other stories. We know you're craving for more knowledge. Let the champions get their glory. It's the worst territory in the world. All right, everybody, welcome in. It is the best time of the week to talk about possibly the worst territory in the world i am your host ben miller sitting here with chris goff and we are going to talk about the worst territory in the world chris welcome in how is everything going this week considering that we are in the heat of the nfl draft we are kansas city has been overtaken by the nfl draft this weekend and it's been man they've been talking about this for like two three years now so it has been a huge undertaking and i hope that it you know, makes the city look really good over the next few days. Um, I just, it's, uh, it's really hard. And, and, you know, me and you both like Kansas city, but Mm -hmm. I I sort of said to my friends, uh, it's sort of hard to compare us to Broadway street in Nashville and the strip in Vegas when you're talking about NFL drafts. I mean, on one of the iconic backdrops of Kansas city, which is union station. And it really looks cool. It's the biggest stage they've ever put together for a draft. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I just, uh, it looked day one, uh, went well. So I'm hoping, uh, Friday and Saturday do as well. Yeah. You know, I, I was thinking about the, obviously I'm always thinking about the potential impact on our city. Um, I want Kansas city to grow. I want it to be a memorable town a la Broadway in Nashville. Is it Broadway? Sure. In Nashville? Yeah. Broadway. Yeah. yeah like I, I, I think our skyline's great. I think there's things that are happening that are coming up in our city and I, you know, obviously being a real estate agent, I'm also like, Hey, what is this going to do for our growth? How is this going to impact my business? Uh, your business being a winery, you know, people more influx of people moving in. Um, but yeah, it looks like we're putting on a good show so far. And, uh, you know, I've seen some really, you know, we have the new airport and I actually saw a rendering, Chris, I don't know if you saw this, um, of what they want to do with the old rock Island trail bridge in Kansas city, Kansas. Yeah. I've been, I've been reading about that as well. It, I, I mean, it looked that, see, that's the kind of like attractive feature that, uh, that, a, a, a up and coming metropolitan city has that could be kind of cool for our city. So hopefully the right eyes get on the city and we'll see uh, what happens in the years to come, but we're not here to talk about Kansas city per se. Obviously we have a great interview, Chris. Um, I can't wait to listen to this interview. You and Gerald Briscoe chopping it up, huh? Oh yeah. Gerald Briscoe. Uh, gosh, I've known him since I was a teenager um, he does call me country in the interview multiple times. I just want everybody <laughs> to understand that my nickname at WWF was big country. So that's how he refers to me as it's my working name. So, uh, <laughs> he, he says country quite a bit, but anyway, he's, uh, I've known him for many years and he's such like a positive, fun, nice guy. If you follow him on social media, you can see that he really doesn't take every anything seriously. He's always joking. I remember when he was let go by WWE, and I hadn't talked to him in a while, and I was curious like how he took that, you know. And he he's like, I have a major announcement. And he put this video up, and he starts saying, "From now on, I'm going to," and it just cut off. And like it was that was a the joke is that he really didn't have anything to say, and uh, <laughs> he just has a real good. I mean, he's in his 70s now, obviously, and he could care less what um, anyone says or thinks about him at this point. I don't know if he ever did. But I did find out something, Gabe. I found out that his first professional match was in Kansas City, and he explains that. And it's pretty cool. Awesome. And what? So we got to talk about this real quick before we jump into the latest and greatest news. 
What was the feedback on the Rip Rogers episode? Because let me tell you how many box messages people hit me up that said, wow, that might have been your guy. Even, I mean, literally so many messages, people saying that might be your best episode. Uh, well, I mean, it is if you enjoy like uh, really over the top language, which I happen to love. So uh, <laughs> right. also like uh, I what I did, actually, you know, I got a lot of great feedback. Uh, but one of the funniest feedbacks I got was uh, I accidentally, you know, with the winery and everything, I'm, I, I, I usually post everything as the winery, but I had my name, my own. I have several accounts. So sometimes on your phone, you don't know what yeah. account you're posting to. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I accidentally, I posted the Rip Rogers episode on my personal account. <laughs> and I knew I did that, but I'm like, oh, you know, whatever, might get some other people that don't really follow wrestling to go see this. And I was, uh, I had a, like, a, we do these little classes at the winery on the weekends where, like, these teachers teach people how to do, like, a wine and paint or, like, a wreath. They, they make wreaths or whatever. I don't know. Craft stuff. And the teacher came up and she's like, okay, I just had to let you know. I saw your your new podcast and I and I listened to it and I'm like, oh my God, you listened to the Rip Rogers podcast for the first time. And she's like, it was it was very funny. I had to turn it down a little bit. I'm like, I'm sure you did. Like he threw out the F word like 500 times in the first couple of minutes. So it's <laughs> like, and then the blowjob part was, that was pretty funny. I'm like, well, I'm glad you had a sense of humor about that. I'm pretty sure if other people didn't, they'll never mention it to me ever. So, uh, so yeah, I, I, that was funny. But yeah, Rip Rogers, what a character. And Gerald Briscoe is is a character as well. Just just doesn't have the same kind of uh, vocabulary. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll get to that interview in just a minute. Really excited to listen to this. But let's talk about the latest and greatest people enjoy when we talk about the uh, the the topical the topical issues and briefly coast through them. So, issue number one, of course, who's dominating the news cycle for the past six years? Seemingly, is our our pal, old Phil Brooks, aka CM Punk who is, it looks like is a lock-in for um, returning to AEW in June um, at their next uh, event in Chicago, which will parlay into their Saturday show. You know, I was talking to an, another insider. I'm just kidding. I was talking to Matt Jackson, and we He's were discussing insider. CM Punk. He's one of the Bucks. Hey, hey, he is one of the Bucks. <laughs> Jackson's probably like, hey, Um and we were talking about CM Punk being backstage at Raw, you know, which is something me and you actually didn't talk about that kind of parlays into the story. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Is he so I know we know obviously know people and are very good friends with people who are very, very good friends with him. Sure. It, it seems like he's turning over a new leaf. Seems well, like it. Seems like he's on like a uh a you know, let's let's all the kumbaya. Yeah. Or, yeah. With which, you know, I've talked to people that know punk and I've talked to people that really know punk and the people that really know him said, you know, to know him is to love him. And then you talk to other people that are kind of on the outskirts and they say, ah, he's kind of a jerk, but, you know, he's he's not bad. But it, I mean, going to Raw, asking for some time with with Triple H, you know, a lot of people are saying, well, it's because he wants to get publicity for his return. I don't think that's the case. To be honest with you, I really, truly believe that he is on an amends tour of some kind. Because maybe his wife or somebody else got into his ear and said, like, hey, it's time to, like, kind of clear the air a little bit. Because you don't, you know, no matter what you feel about certain people, after a while, if, you, if you're if you building up this reputation of being this, like, kind of hard to work with person or a jerk backstage, 
I just got to get to any kind of person with a soul or a conscience. So maybe he, I, I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Is he, is he just like trying to clear things up before he makes his return? Was it a publicity stunt? I, I don't. Well, first of all, the publicity stunt thing seems a little far-fetched to me just because uh, this is a guy that doesn't need publicity for, because exactly. uh, the only thing that's going to need, the only people that are going to read about him being backstage at Raw are people that are already online reading this crap every day anyway. So like, right. what's that really going to prove? Right. Uh, you're not getting any new people that are actually going to be like, oh my gosh, he was at Raw. I, let, <laughs> I need to figure this out more. No, no one really <laughs> knows that. So um, I just, um, I look, I have no idea. I have no idea. Like I know he had, obviously Vince is still in control uh, and him and Vince were pretty tight. I thought for the last, you know, decade, he was going to show up at some point because him and Vince are tight and him and triple H are not, or they have not been in the past. You know, the, he is his longtime quote. What was it? You, you have to work with me. I don't have to work with you. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was something that obviously triple H I'm sure didn't take well. So um, they've had some animosity and he wanted to talk to him. I think it's cool. Uh, maybe it's just as simple as, you know, me and you are getting older too. Uh, as I get older, I realize that, uh, you know, some of these things are really in the grand scheme of life and we're all going to die. And these are like really stupid things to be mad about. Uh, I can also understand when you're in your twenties and thirties and forties, like you get super emotional about your job, your career, and these things are really important to you at that part of your stage of your life, you know? So um, maybe just maybe he's that maybe he's just like, you know what, like I've had time to sit back and and sort of soak in everything that's been going on in life and wrestling. And, I, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm really grateful for everything. Who knows? I, I don't know what it is, but uh, I did think it was very interesting. He showed up at Raw, especially at the same time where uh, he, they're talking about he's it's eminent that he's coming back to AEW. So. Um, is this a, is this a power play for him to going to WWE uh, just to sort of show Tony, like, look, if you're not going to treat this like, uh, you know, this could be, it's a very smart political move in that way. You know, like, are you, if you're not going to play ball correctly, I still have friends over here and I could somehow just slip over here at any point, you know, which I think he could have done anyway. But um, look, if he's coming back to AEW, Gabe, we've talked about it for a while. Um, first of all, it's one of the few great decisions Tony's made. And, uh, I think that he is one of these guys that I don't, you, at some point it's going to go South. It's just sort of the history of it. Like I, he's, he is not the kind of guy, he's a high principle guy. And and I can relate to that. Right. Uh, it doesn't seem like it still seems like romper room over there. So even if punk goes back and he's on a completely different show, how long will it go before something else explodes? I don't know. But uh, I do think that uh, the the crappy part about this is, and we've talked about this before, they should have kept CM Punk on the sh- on the television show all these months and building him up off camera yeah. and continuing this going on and mentioning what's happened off off air on air because you know again I know a lot of people on the internet watch wrestling and vice versa, but I still think P- CM Punk has that sort of mainstream credibility to a degree where. Uh, even the people that don't sit there and read every little rumor and note that uh, Jericho or the Bucks or Omega float out to the dirt sheets that uh, they don't know what's going on. So if Punk was on TV for the last six months cutting promos about the, you know, how badly he was treated, or if you want, make make him a heel, make him babyface, whatever, just keep it alive. It would have been better than having him off TV for you know seven, eight, nine months and then finally show up and he's back again. There'll be another nice little nostalgic pop for him coming back. I'm sure some of the AEW faithful will still boo him. I'm sure. Yep, absolutely. Uh, you know, I don't know where they're going to go, babyface heel on that because you know I know where I think he stands in the whole scheme of things against the EVPs. He's by far the babyface, but um, who knows? I mean, it's it's he is. Uh, 
it, he is really not. I, I love that Jericho wanted to have a meeting with him, and uh, because obviously the joke is that Jericho always needs to be involved in anything that's hot to keep him hot. So um, I know that there's a heat between Jericho and Punk because it came out in the Colt Cabana, um, you know, lawsuit that Jericho had been talking a lot of trash about CM Punk yeah. via text message that yeah. had to be. Uh, that were subpoenaed because of the whole like staff infection WWE doctor lawsuit thing. So, um, you know, I, I know there's heat there. Uh, Punk is definitely higher up the food chain than Chris Jericho in 2023, as far as like relevance. How dare you? So uh, whatever. So I, um, you know, we'll we'll see what happens. But uh, I am if if at all possible, I, I know nothing about anything that's going on. But I just hope that if Punk does get a job back, that our good friend Ace Steel gets his job back because he was the unfortunate fall guy in this whole stupid yeah. thing. And yeah. uh, I, you know, he's he's owed a job back there. If it's if it, if only to be an agent producer for the show CM Punk's gonna be on. Right. Right. And who knows how it's going to play out as far as like, oh, this Saturday show is gonna be like the punk roster. I mean, Tony Khan is I don't want to sound like too much. I can like, guarantee which one will do better. Yeah. I, I and I don't want to sound like one of those like other podcasts that they're like, hey, let's let's talk about how inept Tony Khan is. It's like everybody knows it. He's not a good leader. He's not a good booker. But, you know, maybe he'll get a, a wild hair up his yin yang and, and actually book this correctly. But it's the right move for their show at Wembley Stadium. If he does it right, this could really be an impactful um, thing that he does by bringing CM Punk back. So CM Punk, once again, dominating the news cycle. So who knows what's going to happen, but hopefully it turns out to, you know, uh, for the better for all involved and CM Punk will make a boatload of money. So uh, moving on, the next thing I want to talk about is Triple H unveils the new WWE heavyweight championship, I believe is what it's called. And as you said before we went on the air, my first thought when I saw the still of him unveiling it, I was like, oh, it's the big gold belt with the WWE logo in the middle. Right on. Because, you know, Triple H yeah. is love him or hate him. He loves the business. He's a big Ric Flair mark. Um, you know, I, I got a whole thing about Ric Flair. Anywho, what what happened to that guy? Makes me sad every he time. He was I just in him. Kansas City last week. At the he US. was. And then he was on the Joe Rogan podcast. And that was... Yeah, I can't stand listening to Ric Flair do. I can't either. Nowadays. He's so oh. it's so it's so like um, I, I don't know. Pathetic's the word. It's, no, it's it like, is. He's not like uh, <laughs> he he's still living like uh, he just never matured. Yeah, you know, I don't, absolutely. He's not he's not classy in any way. He dresses no. great and has expensive clothes and shoes and watches, but other than that, he just hasn't. He's not like he doesn't see. Yeah, picture your grandfather. And then look at Flair and see which one acts a little bit more like normal, their age, sort of classy, mature, whatever. Right. And Ric Flair was none of those. So Yeah, it's just weird. But anyway, so he unveils this championship belt. So apparently what's going to happen is that belt is going to be a part of the brand because they're doing the draft and the brands mm -hmm. thing, which I don't know. That's it. We could do a whole show about that. Um which maybe we should, um, but they're going to do the whole draft thing. And whatever uh, show Roman Reigns is not on, that's where the belt is going to, or the, the brand that the belt is going to land with. So Chris, my question for you is we, we've been doing the song and dance for years. Roman Reigns is the, is the unified champion. And here we come with another belt. 
Is this good for wrestling, having all these titles, all these championships? Does it eventually hit an iceberg as it did when the brand had two different belts and then they now Roman Reigns holds both of them? I mean, aren't we just kind of spinning our wheels here with creating more and more championships? What do you think, Chris? It's almost like he's doing it because every other company is like making new belts on a monthly basis. It's like... Uh, look, I was there on the writing team when they brought back the big gold belt and sort of handed it, you know, Flair handed it to Triple H back right. in, you know, 02. And um, at that point, uh, he only had it for a month or two when we wanted him to drop it to Rob Van Dam. And he refused to because he got to Vince and basically told him that he thinks he should he should chase it more to make it mean more. Wait, wait, wait. Month- er, that was an actual plan? Oh, gosh. The entire writing team wanted... Uh, Rob Van Dam was going to win the title in September of 02. And unforgiving. Really? Yeah. And then it was changed at the last minute because Triple H um, said it would mean more if he if he chased it more. And then Rob had, um, during that time, Rob went over on an on-cam. Like, he went out and did a promo. And he went over by, like, seven minutes in his, like, little talk, you know, back and forth with Triple H. And he got back and got his ass reamed. And then... Uh, his, he went down after that. And then No Mercy 02 was uh, Kane versus Triple H. Once again, everyone voted. Uh, I mean, it was, I agree to talk a whole episode about this meeting that we were in. It was the agents and the writers. And everyone voted because Vince wasn't there because I believe he was, I forget where we were, if it was Texas or somewhere, but he he was off site visiting somebody and he wasn't at this I'm meeting. Sure. We all voted. And maybe it was maybe it was a girl. I don't know. And uh, we all voted, and he uh, Kane was going to go over. And then once again, same thing didn't happen. And then that led us to WrestleMania 19, where I thought for sure that Booker T was going to win the title, and he didn't either. So uh, this is, uh, I guess, my point is yes, Triple H loves the business, and I guess he he also loves putting himself over. So uh, I don't know about the uh, the belt. The belt looks cool. I mean, like it's an updated version of the big gold belt. Um, I think wrestling has way too many belts now. Uh, it's interesting. I see like Taz and other people online sort of argue that there's, you know, what's wrong with having so many belts. And I just, I, I if that's the mentality, even of veterans now, I, I think it's our, like, it's like a lost cause. I mean, it's everyone has a title belt. It's stupid. It's dumb. Uh, you know, like where's the hierarchy of where in the grand, this is why wrestling is not wrestling anymore. There's no, there's no hierarchy to building up a guy to be the IC champ. And then by the way, after that, for a little while, maybe you can go after the big title, you know, that that's gone, that whole mentality. Now it's just like, how many belts can we have on every show, especially AEW? uh, that it's just like, it's just, I mean, it's just watering it down to the point that it's just meaningless. So do you think that this is a way possibly to placate those people that really wanted another that one another champion outside of Roman Reigns? They want someone like Cody to win the belt. So therefore they're like, let's create this belt, give it to somebody like Cody, who's really never I mean, Roman Reigns is quote unquote the top dog. He's always gonna be the top dog until he loses those titles. Those titles, he's made those titles mean more than anything they could ever create. So is this title placating all those fans and internet marks who want to see a, a, a different champion? I would hope that's not why they're doing it because that's maybe the dumbest reason ever to have another title. I mean, this is like a 
uh, you know, the whole point of, again, this is old school wrestling mentality. So I know that's not even valid anymore. So I don't even know I'm talking about it, but the, <laughs> the, the, you know, it used to like, it's good. It used to be good for fans to be sick of Roman Reigns or like, yeah. not like he's a heel. Yeah. Oh, no one beats him. This is horrible. You know, they used to be a good thing. Now it's looked at as like, this is just so dumb because the writers and Vince won't allow him to drop it. So let's just right. make another title. Right. Because <laughs> I mean, that's just like the, that stupid, mentality is just like i mean placating to that is so dumb so i hope that's not the reason i just think they like to have like he's a big fan of that belt and maybe maybe he had a little bit more input in this and he he got to flex his muscle on that that title um i mean you know like it's like you said a belt is not going to make cody Rhodes equal to roman reigns no. so not no. until he beats roman reigns so that's the whole point of wrestling so i look uh there's been way too many belts and yeah, especially way too many world title belts. So um, if you don't like one of the belts, like you, you know, like people hated the spinner belt or whatever, get rid of it and get something new. <laughs> but I just, I don't know. I There's too many. And, uh, but I don't think that's going away anytime soon. No, no, it's probably indi indica an indication of our times that we're living in. Everyone gets a trophy. Yay. I guess it's sort of like that. You know, when I'm saying all this stuff, I know that some people, some friends of mine will send me the, uh, Oh, uh, the grandpa Simpson uh, yelling at the clouds yeah. meme because I I'm like, I, I really, that's, I'm not even trying to be that way. I'm just saying like, when I grew up, this is how I understood it was like, right. uh, just because something evolves to something stupid doesn't mean it's evolved for the better. It just means it's evolved to something that's lesser than, you know I mean? I think we can all understand like, uh, uh, <clears throat> I, to, to tie it into something else, I, I went inside, I hadn't been inside a McDonald's for like, I don't know, like, a long time okay because <laughs> right. if i ever go to mcdonald's for my children i will go in the drive-thru because i don't yeah. want to have them eat inside because it's annoying but so i went through the drive-thru or we went inside because my my youngest wanted to go play in the stupid playground in there and i'm like i'm pretty sure it's been closed off since covid and most of the new mcdonald's don't even have these stupid playgrounds anymore so we go in there dude talk about so this has evolved right mcdonald's has evolved uh it's horrible Okay, it's like this cold, like horrifically modern, boring place now yeah. that is just filled with uh, incompetent employees, right? And so when when I saw this meme the other day, it was like, "Here's McDonald's when you were a kid, and here's McDonald's now." And like when we were a kid, it was like cool playgrounds, like yeah. fun, colorful figures, Ronald McDonald, all these things. And I, you know, I guess it's sort of to me, it's like this is another ex example of the title belts and how things are now, where it's involved with something that's irrelevant and dumb so uh, they take all the life and fun out of it and replace it with robot kiosks you know sure well that's because you have to pay them 20 dollars an hour but that's that's all other topic yeah <laughs> and last but not least chris circulating around the globe is the uh the never-ending parade of lawsuits and everything that come out of the woodwork for every single company if you fart in the wind in the wrong direction of somebody you could sue them and uh, get damages and settle out of court and i'm not saying that this is the case with this next story but there is a former writer of the wwe um who is suing the wwe for i believe racial discrimination now being a, a former writer yourself um some of the charges that she let and you can talk about some of these charges that she's um uh, proposing in her lawsuit w what do you think as far as the you know, obviously the writing room was much different when you were writing as compared to today, because now they're an even larger publicly traded company that has to 
have these structures that corporations have in place to make sure that they don't land themselves in this type of hot water. So Chris, what do you think about this, this uh, lady suing the WWE for uh, discrimination? Okay. Well, I, I reported on this on another uh, radio show I do uh, on Thursday okay. and this had come out on ESPN.com and I had not heard about it on sort of wrestling mainstream stuff, but this was, there's a lady called Brittany Abrahams. She's a black woman. She says she was fired by WWE last year in retaliation yeah. for pushing back against racism as well as racist and stereotypical pitches in the writing room. And she goes on to talk about how uh, some of her trust, she's suing the WWE, five backstage employees, and executives Vince McMahon and Stephanie McMahon. Uh, she claims that several writers while she was there made uh, pitches, one including a, that a Saudi Arabian born wrestler was uh, secretly orchestrated the attacks of September 11th. Also that uh, Apollo Crews had speak with an over the top Nigerian accent and uh, you know, other things with Bianca Belair uh, having stereotypical jargon written for her, stuff like that. Um, now <laughs> it's, uh, the first thing I saw with this was, first of all, let, let's get to the bottom line. She was fired because she took a commemorative chair uh, from WrestleMania last year without paying for it or asking for it. And she was fired after they discovered she stole a chair. And she uh, basically said that it's unfair because other uh, non-Black people had done that and they were okay with it, which who knows? I don't know if that's true or not. Who, who knows? But so there's obviously some bitterness on her side towards this company. Um, when I read her, uh, <clears throat> when I read her allegations, I just think this is another example of wrestling is doomed. I mean, uh, <clears throat> you can't really do anything anymore where, and this, uh, you know, I, uh, when you pitch storylines in writer's room, you throw out a bunch of stupid stuff. Okay. Right. I mean, like, it's just like everything that, uh, you know, you hear the Vince, Vince Russo talks about a lot. And he was obviously had a lot more autonomy than when I was there. When I was there, there was like five people on the raw writing team. It was uh, <clears throat> Michael Hayes, Bruce Pritchard, myself, Brian Gewertz and Ed Kosky. OK, and we would work all week and then we'd pitch at the Vince at the end of the week. Right. So, I mean, at that point, like there was all kinds of stuff being thrown against the wall. And like some of it is completely ridiculous. Some of that got on the air. Some of it was like, you know, some of it was pitched by actual wrestlers. Like I was telling you earlier, D'Lo Brown kept pitching to me that he wanted to do a racial angle. And, you know, spinning off, obviously, he had been in the the uh, nation, of nation of domination. So he wanted to do an angle where he just sort of spun off with Teddy long as his manager. That's how Teddy long, by the way, got brought back to the company for like 20 years is that he came back with D'Lo to be his manager, to be when D'Lo did uh, his saying was down with the Brown and uh, he was going to be sort of a militant black guy. And this was a pitch that D'Lo Brown made. Um, you know, he was obviously turning heel. He wanted to do something and he thought this was going to work. You know why? Because, you know, uh, the majority of people watching wrestling, the demographic is like middle of the road to lower of the road, uh, white people. Right. right. So, right. um, you know, so I, you gotta have like, I guess like I go about stuff like this, like very systematically meaning, uh, who's watching the show, who are you writing to? And then when you're dealing with wrestlers, like we did in NWL, what are, what are the defining characteristics that this person brings to the table that other people on the roster don't bring? Uh, Apollo Crews, Nigerian born. That's something that makes him different. Uh, 
like having him play up a character for that reason, I don't consider to be like, hey, look, and I don't, maybe Apollo Cruz was like all for this and thought it would be, may, I have no idea. I've never, I don't, I don't personally know him. So I don't know if he thought right. this would be a good idea or a bad idea. Um, you know, attack someone that's behind the attacks of, of 2001. Um, that's something that uh, was thrown out a lot of times uh, since the attacks. And obviously, uh, you know, you had, uh, Hassan was the guy that was mm-hmm. uh, the wrestler that they, the Italian guy they turned. I was going to say the Italian, yeah, yeah Middle yeah, Eastern yeah. guy. But uh, you know, it, it's wrestling has evolved. Some of it for good, some of it for bad. Um, this is how wrestling was built through the years, whether you like it or not. I mean, I still remember. Uh, I just thought it was interesting. Like uh, I, I used to make a joke, and like, and it's like a, it was a joke where like when I grew up, everyone said he really Pearl harbored him. You know, you heard that all the time. Right. All the time. It's like with that knowledge, are they going to say like, they really nine 11 him? you know, like, because like that, that's the same kind of thing, which in our age is like very crass. Okay. Right. Which I, and I understand that. And I it's, but wrestling uh, in some ways has been sort of outdated. And I think is almost, you could argue that wrestling the way that it was for like the first hundred years is basically, you should just, make just kill it because it's not it's not appropriate anymore to many people in society now so right you know that's why wrestling has turned into the flippy uh acrobatic over-the-top athleticism uh showcases rather than uh you know meaningful storylines um you know the storyline that is what, what are the storylines that are really big now the biggest one by far the bloodline uh, everyone knows the long history of the the nationalistic history of the Samoan family and uh, and Tongan family. So you know that makes sense. Like they're the they're uh, they've been around for years. Um, you know, the power- but without addressing Chris, without sorry to interrupt you, without yeah. addressing those seriously racial differences, mm-hmm. there what are how can we create or how can they create stories? that don't address some of these issues. It's impossible. You can't write around these differences in, in obvious appearance or, or in cultural differences. It's, that's a task too tall to, to ask anybody to do. Well, it's just impossible. I'm not saying that this woman has no merit for her lawsuit. I'm not saying that none of these things are, or, uh, or some of these ideas that were pitched, maybe she did experience that kind of stuff. I, I wasn't there, so I can't say. But it's just we're merely addressing the fact that it, it in a creative room like that, you can't sit there and be like, well, uh, we can't talk about their skin color. We can't talk about their ethnic background. We can't talk about their sexual orientation. We can't talk about how long or how short their hair. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, So what are you left with? Nothing. Nothing. Like, that's why. That's why. That is. I mean, there's so many reasons. Like, and we could do uh, a ten part series about why wrestling is the way it is now. There's multiple reasons. You know, the lack of the territories, lack of um, yes. lack of uh, trained professionals for a decade before they hit the mainstream. You know, lack of. Uh, but but I really argue. I would argue that the biggest issue is uh, political correctness, and not saying that it, there should be none. I'm just saying that. You know, I mean, every time a wrestling angle starts where the heel gets heat at the beginning for something that is deemed today as like not kosher, inappropriate, 
Like instead of letting it play out where the baby face will eventually, as in wrestling 99.9% of the time, the baby face will prevail at the end of this and the bad guy will look like the jerk he is. I mean, this is, uh, they don't allow that to play out because they're so offended by step one. They don't let step five come where, you know, the step, the, the bad guy gets his come up. And so it's really difficult to, like you said, I mean, I, I equate it to NWL when we would sit on the phone and talk to all these guys and ask their background, um, you know, and this is where I think that, uh, you know, non-Caucasian wrestlers have an edge over Caucasian wrestlers because they do have a a something that, you know, sets them apart, you know, that, right. that gives them an advantage to at least people knowing who they are. Now, how you deal with that is up to the wrestler, up to the writers, up to Vince, whoever. Uh, but I think using their their background, you know, there's been plenty of white people throughout the history of wrestling that are portrayed as complete idiots, like whether they're hillbillies or uh, hillbillies, dumb cowboys, dumb like uh, Nazi sympathizers. I mean, there's been all this stuff that, you know, it, it has been done for years uh, and it's and it makes them different. It's a it's a characteristic that sets them apart. I mean, I, it's almost like. I, I just people that are that are against any kind of pitches like this. I just want them to go do this job for a while and make something entertaining right. uh, without using anything <laughs> other than their athleticism and how well they can cut a promo because that promo can't even elicit any of this talk either. So right. it's, just, <laughs> right. it's just hard. I mean, like I wrestling like that is gone. So wrestling, I mean, you always have the power angle. That's what I always did on the Indies. You had to do the power, you know, you had uh, Strider was the, our sort of commissioner and he was the right. powerful guy holding down, like uh, holding down the baby faces, trying to win the title. I mean, throwing stuff in front of his, in front of him, using his money and power. You can do that <clears throat> because th- that will always be acceptable to just bury. But um, most anything else, I always joke, like, would Macho Man and Hulk Hogan now? Like, could you imagine, like, in a writer's room now, like, where you're like, yeah, we're going to talk about how, you know, Macho Man sort of beats on Elizabeth a little bit, and we're going to have uh, Hulk Hogan sort of fondle her ass, like, in a promo in the ring where, you know, we're going to bring that up, how that happened, you know? And I, there will be people having issues with that. Oh, okay? yeah. That, and, and I don't even know if that angle, which is one of the best angles ever when I was a child, the mega powers exploding. I don't know if that could happen today based on how it was sort of set up then. And even when it was set up then, it was set up on a sort of a child's level angle. Anyway, you know, it wasn't like uh, really intricate. It was just things that they sort of planted seeds along the way. And it was sort of easy for even a 10 year old to understand. But uh, yeah, just um, I, I what she's saying here. If she somehow wins this, uh, based on what I'm reading, I'm like, this is a bad precedent to set because I don't know how you can pitch anything. Uh, you know, the creativity of people in the room uh, is going to be stifled to a point to where it's like, why even have storyline writers? Just right, and which is what sets wrestling apart from every other form of entertainment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, think, but and and there's a way, you know, because I think people that are upset by these kinds of things there's a way to create these stories and celebrate, you know, differences and all that kind of stuff. Cause when you look at it, the bloodline, for example, has elevated. I mean, if you don't look at Samoan culture differently after following the bloodline angle has like a celebrate, like, Oh my God, this is awesome. These guys are awesome. Sure. Very, tight. You know, and so it actually yeah. elevates Samoan culture by presenting this bloodline storyline. But I mean, if there's a way 
to, you don't have to go all, all super crazy. I, I mean, I remember Sergeant Slaughter when he turned on America, I was so sure. hurt as a child. I was, I was like, and I didn't know anything about the news other than we're at war. Right. Yeah. And I was, I was, I like, do know Sergeant Slaughter's an American. Like how dare he turn his back on us and now, you know, blah, blah, blah. But there's a way to, to write these stories that don't have to be like, I don't know. I don't know. Some of the more controversial stuff from a, a bygone era, like Fritz von Erich being a Nazi sympathizer. I mean, there's a way that like you can craft these stories without doing a, a, like making it over the top and, and, and putting on this overtly racist or racial show about people's ethnic backgrounds. You can still like asking, in my opinion, asking Apollo Cruz to do a Nigerian accent. I don't know if he's not opposed to it. What, what's what's the issue? You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if he was or wasn't. I right. You know, who knows? Maybe it's hard to I, say. It's hard to I, say. And Bianca Belair having stereotypical jargon. I I will say, and that's been a problem in in the. It's been a problem for years, and that's probably why they need to hire more culturally diverse background people in a in right. a writer's room because. You know, I mean, the old joke was back in the 60s, you know, like everyone writing for good times and like Sanford Sun stuff were like New York Jewish guys, you know, right. so it's like, how would they understand how to write for, right. you know, J.J. Walker, you know, and right. like totally, totally understand that, you know, uh, and maybe that's the case. Maybe there's uh, somebody was one of the writers, you know, like I was uh, when I was there, I was put in charge of the women's division and then tag team and then some other stuff. And it's like. You know, I don't talk I, I, I can't really write verbiage for a female because I'm not one. So I don't really know exactly how they would talk to another female in a fight or right. whatever. Uh, so I didn't really have to write them. And I, this has probably evolved to where they write them like complete paragraphs and say this exactly like this. You know, that wasn't right. No right. there. It was more bullet point type stuff. And I wasn't directing them that that, you know, that closely that that minutia. But um, yeah, I don't know, man. I It's. You're going to have to uh, have uh, pitches that are when you're, especially when you're in a creative moment, you have to be able to have sort of uh, uninhibited thought processes. And this is sort of like, in my opinion, uh, breaking that a little bit, uh, what they decide to put on TV. Like I, I, I have a friend who had a guy die in, uh, in September 11th in the building, and he was extremely upset about the Muhammad Hassan angle. And he still brings it up to this day. And I, that was really too close to home at that point, the world, the, you know, it's the world is so much smaller now. And again, I could argue that even if you have, if you're, if you're offended by all this stuff, I won't disagree with you. I just think that wrestling is just, it's not what it was anymore. And you can't really do that stuff anymore. And that's why, you know, backgrounds, nationalities, even race isn't necessarily celebrated in either way anymore. Uh, it's just sort of um, just very vanilla, which is why the the business is like it for good or for bad. You know, I don't know. It's up I to would you. never. I could not imagine being a writer in this kind of climate because, again, even if you're just spitballing ideas, which I'm sure somebody was just spitballing the idea about um, Monsoor being like the one or orchestrating the 911 attacks, which is so absurd. But I can see someone like just saying, "Well, what if we do something where like." He's part of a like somehow we insinuate that he's part of a terrorist incel and or a cell and blah 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 you know and it's like 
And then somebody's like, oh man, that's really kind of crass and shitty, you know, mm-hmm. but yeah, oh, well, you know, let's, let's throw it up there. We'll see what happens is, you know, and you kind of disseminate and pick apart other ideas, but man, being a writer today, I'd be like, they'd be like, so Gabe, what do you have? And I'd be like, um, so, uh, Adam Cole is, uh, let's make him a model. Cause he's good looking. Um, yeah, yeah. that's about it. That's all I got guys. Thanks. And then I, you know, peace out. Like, uh, Bianca Belair, she's, uh, maybe one of the best, uh, athletes I've ever seen. Uh, just make her a good athlete. Like that's what I would do. I'd just be like, all right, bye. That's about what it has become to a large degree. I mean, that's, you know, that's just, it's just very vanilla and that's just, I guess what it's going to end up evolving more and more into just an athletic endeavor, which, you know, as you can see on AEW, people get hurt weekly uh, doing like crazy stuff trying to top each other. Where it used to be, it was all 95% talking, you know, and then yeah. the, the match just happened to happen, you know, uh, and it wasn't really like very high level. Uh, you know, you're not putting your body at risk necessarily that that much on a daily basis. But um, yeah, it, it's it's tough. Uh, I just I wouldn't want to be there now either. It was already got that way when I was there. Um you know, it's sort of hard. Like I said, the globe has gotten so much smaller. So when you have somebody that has a Middle Eastern dis- uh, descent and they come in and they're like a very good athlete and you want to do something with this person, uh, it's really, I don't know, it's really hard not to think about like, okay, how can okay, we they're from the Middle East? Like, yeah. And, yeah. Like what, what we're in America. So what does that, what does that make you think of, you know? Right. Uh, and that's, um, you know, if you're, especially if you're obviously going for a heel, um, you know, and if your answer is, well, just make him a good athlete and just, he's good. Okay. Well, him and a hundred other people. So I just, it's just, uh, it's really, um, like we said, when we went through the NWL guys and asked what they liked and disliked, they all gave us stuff. Uh, you know, I mean, there was, uh, Caucasians, there were blacks, there were, uh, Hispanics, they all had, uh, and a lot of the guys had stuff based on their background of race or, right. you know, uh, or sexual orientation or whatever. And that was their thing. Cause they know that's what makes them unique and, and special, you know, like, I mean, right. I don't know what else to say. I mean, it's a bunch of, a bunch of like white guys are not special either. They, they have to have something about them because otherwise it's boring. I don't know. So, um, I don't know. We'll see where this goes. Uh, like Chad Barstow, Chad Barstow, middle of the road, white guy. We made him have a, a selfie and a party guy, you know, social media, uh, you know, <laughs> savant. I, don't I know love, ta- I love talking about old NWO gimmicks because some of them were home runs and some of them were fun to watch. All right. Well, I just wanted to get your perspective being a former writer and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of talk about the, you know, the current state of wrestling so that'll do it for this week's like little hot news button topics. Chris, why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit more about this interview with Gerald Briscoe, and then we'll go to that interview. Yeah, well, like I said, he had his. You'll find out that he he started in Missouri uh, on like a whim. Uh, it was an accident, sorta, and uh, we'll talk about that. Gerald Briscoe, obviously, he's gone from uh, amateur wrestler to collegiate wrestler at uh, Oklahoma State to uh, professional wrestler, teaming with his brother, world champion Jack. And uh, then you go on to, uh, you know, become a stooge, get involved in the hierarchy of WWE, uh, be one of the best recruiters uh, of amateur wrestlers and amateur athletes to WWE. And now he does a podcast with JBL. I mean, this guy has done the gamut 
uh, in professional wrestling. Anyone over the age of 25 knows who the hell Gerald Briscoe is. And uh, it was just fun to talk to him about some of the stories that he had uh, with his limited time in Central States, but he rubbed elbows with everyone that came through no. Central States that is known in Kansas City, whether it was Rufus R. Jones, Sonny Myers. He talks about Danny Little Bear a lot. He he started with him and uh, got some wow. ring time with him early on. Um, but it was it was fun to chat with Gerald, and uh, I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, so let's get to that interview right now with Jerry Gerald Briscoe right here on the worst territory in the world. It's the worst territory. Joined now by an old friend of mine, WWE Hall of Famer Gerald Briscoe. And Jerry, it's been, I don't know, man. Well, it's been a few years since I saw you, but I, it's been since WWE. I saw you at Cauliflower Alley a handful of years ago, but you still look the same to me. Well, I appreciate that. I'm just getting older every day as we all are, man. I'm blessed to be 76 years old and still, still out there running around the country trying to live a few years. You know? Yeah, and, you know, I, I listen to your podcast pretty religiously, too, with JBL. And is that is that pretty fun to do these days? Oh, I tell you, you know, and I, I got to give all, all, all props to uh, JBL uh, on this thing. Uh, you know, when, when COVID hit, you know, everybody was sequestered at home. And, uh, and uh, you know me, I'm a, I'm a smart ass. So I just, <laughs> I, I, you know, I couldn't sit here in my home business. So I had to get in everything else. So I started uh, doing a few things. Uh, I met this young comedian, Taylor Williamson, that I met up in Chicago. <clears throat> he was actually writing uh, the uh, rose for Bruce Pritchard. Okay. And he, he was assigned to, to Bruce and I. So. He called me and he said, hey, you want to do something silly just to pass the time? I said, sure. So I started doing something. Of course, JBL, the loudmouth Texan that we both know. <laughs> and, uh -huh. So he was doing something, too. And after a while, we just got bored doing that. So he called. He said, hey, man, why don't, we're trying to do the same thing. We're trying to make people laugh and forget about all this crap here. Why don't we do something together and do old road stories? So that was basically how it was, was spawned out. And uh, we started doing it. We agreed right away. Hey, man, there's too much negativity going on, so let's just f focus on smiling and making people happy. So that was kind of our, our MO to, to start with, just to, just no negative stuff, no dirt. We're enough dirt out there now, so we just we let to leave that to the other guys. So um, we, we just go out and we have fun, and we tell these old road stories. They're old-school road stories that, you know, guys that, that you hear legends about, so we don't hear, we don't get the hearsay stories. We we go right to the source and get to get the main source. What, what makes it better? Oh yeah, I mean, I, I used to sit around with uh, well Bob Geigel and Harley Race around here uh, when when they were still around. I loved just you know as you did, I'm sure when you were a young guy, you like to sit around and just listen to them talk and shut your mouth. <laughs> Well, that, that's certainly how you learn, you know, and, uh, you know, and uh, I was fortunate enough to come up in a, in a, in a era in professional wrestling where, where when you were a rookie in the first, first five years, you were considered a rookie. You know, hell with the first year, first five years, you were considered a rookie. You just sat in the backseat of that car, kept your mouth shut, and I uh, spoke when I uh, spoken to and, and listened to all the great stories, man. What a learning tree we all had, man. I used to sit there, same thing with, uh, when I when I was a, uh, just starting a business, as a matter of fact, I still feel I go up to Kansas City and do TV up there. Meet Geigel, meet Beto, Pat O'Connor, uh, Bulldog Brown, and the Browser, and all, all those guys, and Harley, and 
just sitting there and just be amazed, my eyes wide open, because I'd seen all these big guys, big time guys in, in the wrestling magazine. So I was a fan like everybody else. When I first got in the business, I was, I was man, I was a mark for everybody. <laughs> well, I think we all are when we first get in there. Um, when you, I, I, I still did, am, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, that's why I'm doing this show. Sure. I, yeah. I still like to have like my toe in something pro wrestling just so I can yeah. still keep some connection to it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I did when I was doing some research on on some of your history of your short history and not very long in Central States and we'll get to that in a second. But I saw that your your first professional match was in the state of Missouri and I had no idea. Yeah, it was. It was, it was kind of a strange uh, strange lead up to it. You know, uh, my brother of course started in the business uh, years before I did, about five three years before I did, maybe maybe a little bit longer, but not 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 over not about three or four years before I got in the business. So I was still in college at Oklahoma State University on a wrestling team. And 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 uh, so during spring breaks and during the holidays and uh, and summertime, um, I got a job like a lot of guys do, driving the ring truck, setting up the ring truck. And that setting up the little in Oklahoma in the summertime, you already ran all those little high school football stadiums. And so the shows were sold all over the state and so they needed somebody off uh, away from the main uh, main uh, towns to to take the ring around so they hired me as a ring truck driver so i'd go out and i'd, I'd set out to set up the ring and sure enough one of the old timers would come in early hey kid you wrestling school yeah i wrestled in school he said how about we go up there and we trade information what do you mean well they, I'll, we'll teach you a little bit how to work if, if you'll teach us a little bit about the about the college style so we kind of exchanged knowledge like that, and that's kind of how I started in. So I kind of had a little little basic uh, doing. I had actually had no matches, but I, I I had a lot of experience just doing little spots in the ring before before the people got there. So mm-hmm. we were up in Joplin, Missouri, spring break. I forgot what year it was, but uh, I'm sitting there in the dressing room with my brother before everybody got in. And my brother used to have to go early and do radio and TV because there's a good looking young man from Oklahoma and uh, Missouri didn't have any of those good looking young men. <laughs> <laughs> We're all tough. So, yeah. They're all tough cowboys here. Yeah. All tough cowboys. Yeah. So anyway, uh, so uh, I'm sitting there in the dressing room and the, the promoter walks in and says, uh, Hey Jack, uh, your partner, I think, I think he was scheduled to be gorgeous George Jr. Hurt his ankle last night and he, he can't make the, make the town today. So you're going to have to do a single about that time. Buddy coat and, uh, and uh, his his partner Brown uh, Dale Brown walked in walked in the dressing room and uh, they had seen me do 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 the exchange. As a matter of fact, Buddy Coat had swapped stories with me, swapped knowledge with me on some of these spot shows. He said, "How about his brother there?" He said, "We've been showing him how to do a few holds." He said, "We'll just keep it simple. We we can get the time we need out out of that." So. They asked me if I wanted to do it. You know, I'm sure I want to do it. <laughs> I've been sure. waiting for this moment. So, so I borrowed my brother's boots and borrowed somebody else's tights. And and uh, back in those days, the cards wasn't wasn't 20 matches long. You know, it was more like four or five matches. And the tag team match, if you're a tag team, they had what they called a warm-up match, where where two guys would go out in the beginning uh, at the first match and go about 10 or 15 minutes to fill some time then come back in the tag match so mm-hmm. but he said i'll take you out in in, in a warm-up match we'll go 10 minutes to see how it goes and 
you know, if we think it's right, we'll come back and attend the tag match. If not, we'll just do it. We'll just do your brother and Brown as a single match. I said, sure. So I went out, and before I went out, my brother slapped me upside the head and said, shut your mouth, don't do a thing. My buddy's one of the greatest in the world, So, which was a Missouri guy, by the way, too. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he's one of the best in the world. said, shut up, just listen to him and do whatever he tells you to do. So. You know, I buckled my mouth up and went out there. We had like a little 10, 15-minute warm-up match, and it it went pretty decent. It went good enough where the promoter and, and, and Buddy both said, hey, we're going to do the tag match. So that's kind of how, how I got in the business. <laughs> wow. I mean, I, of course, you had a, a great uh, amateur background going into that, and I know you'd been around it a lot, and you see that happen a lot nowadays, but it doesn't seem like something that would be very prevalent back then where a guy with basically no matches gets to go into a spot like that. I mean, it was pretty rare, wasn't it? Well, it was real rare, but, you know, my brother was, was a shining star. He'd come out of college, so he, he, was, he was on the road to, 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 to strap to a damn uh, rocket ship. And sure. so his career was fine, climbing like crazy. So uh, so it didn't happen. And, and like I said, if it hadn't been for Buddy Cole kind of backing me up, and there were a couple other guys in the director and they kind of vouched for me, too. It said they'd shared knowledge with me, too, in some of these spots showed where I'd go out and just go through, show them a couple of takedowns, and they show me a couple of maneuvers too. So, I had a lot of, lot of, lot of veteran vouching for me. Which, what you know, come to think about it, my brother and I talked about it later. What an honor that was that these guys would back back me up like that, and you know, allow me to okay. to go out and, and test test myself. You know, get real actual professionals in, in the ring of course i couldn't say a word about it because there was no nil you know name image and likeness back in those days <laughs> if you were called taking money you know you're declared ineligible so yeah you know i don't even think they they even posted it you know that i was a substitute there so Wow. Until, you can get away with that then. You can't get away with anything nowadays. No. No, you can't. But there was no internet, of course. No, no way, no social media. So, you know, what was done there in those little local towns, you know, in Joplin, Missouri was a, was a, was a, uh, every, every Saturday, every other Saturday night town for, for Leroy McGurk there. So, uh, we go up there like every, so there were, there were not, usually not a lot of press covering professional wrestling, you know, so, uh, so it, it was really able, uh, we're really able to kind of keep it under wraps and not make it too big of a deal out of it. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I looked up your history in, in actual Kansas City. Of course, you have a long history in St. Louis. But in, in Kansas City, it was pretty spotty for you. But I did want to ask you about uh, just meeting some of the guys who were involved in this because, of course, I know you rubbed elbows with all these guys. And let's start with uh, – uh, the Mr. Promoter himself, Bob Geigel. Now, I know he came up from Texas, and he took over from Kansas City, and he became the face of this town for 50 years. But what was your first dealings with him, and what did you think about the guy? Well, you know, I really didn't know because, like I said, when I first when I got out of college, finally, and said, "This is what I'm going to do," you know, I was, I was I was still green as green could be, and I was still trying to learn the business. So. Back in those days, because territories were so small and they couldn't keep a large number of people on there, so they had to take care of the guys. They didn't want them on TV every week, especially the young up-and-coming rookies. So what what the local promoters would do in that area, and Dory Funk Jr. Sr. was included in that, it was Leroy McGurk and, and Fritz down in Dallas. They were all included in this little roundhouse type of deal where they exchanged young talent work. 
uh, Geigel would send a couple of guys down to Oklahoma City to do their TV. And back in those days, usually your TVs were filmed on a Saturday, you know, mm-hmm. so it was pretty, pretty consistent all around, all around the country. You did your TVs on a Saturday, whether it aired on a Monday, Tuesday, or whatever day they were, they were done in a studio wrestling for like 25, 50 people yeah. every Saturday night. In Oklahoma City's case, it was 1130 at night, which made for a long night. Wow. But, uh, anyway, they would exchange talent for guys to go up and do jobs and get get the local guys over. And Kansas City would send a couple of guys to Oklahoma, and they would send a couple of guys up there. So my, fir- my first weekend doing this is when I very first met, and I, I can't put a date on it, but when I very first met Bob Geigel and Pat O'Connor and Harley Race and Bulldog, and all, all the guys, all the, the 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 nationally known guys in Kansas City wrestling. So as, as a little rookie from Oklahoma, it was a thrill to go up and just sit in the same locker room and same presence with these guys. And like we said, talked earlier, to listen to these guys and how, how they conducted themselves. So... First, first match there, I was I was, uh, I was I booked to go with against Bulldog Bob Brown and Bob Brown. I went out TV match. He beat the crap out of me, but you know what? I was taught to fight back, you know. And so I knew I knew how to wrestle. Before I went up there, Danny Hodge took me aside. I'll never forget Danny Hodge. He had you going up there to, uh, to get the other guys over. But if you're smart, you can get yourself over, and it might be a future territory for you too. So I had that in the back of my mind, you know that escape Oklahoma, you know, go to another, another place and, and, and get some experience also with different hands and everything. So he said, never let a guy out wrestle. You can let a heel out heal you because you're a baby face, but never let them out wrestle you. That's your gimmick. That'll be your gimmick for the rest of your life, whether you know it or not. And sure enough, it was on the wrestler. So I went up, Bob Brown, like I said, beat the crap out of me and went over one, two, three, and a lot of TV time. But they were really impressed the way way I fought back and kind of took care of myself. So that, that was Kansas City TV. That night you had to get in the car after you finished with uh, with Kansas City and drive over to St. Joe, which isn't a long drive, but they did evening TV over in St. Joe, Missouri. Uh-huh. So I go over there, and I, as soon as you, you get in, and I don't think it's changed uh, to, still to this day, there's there's a tote board on, on the wall that tells you who you're competing against that night. So I went, first thing you do when you go walk into a building, you walk over that list. And I said, Bob, Pat O'Connor, man, my heart dropped to my, to my ass, man. I got to get Pat O'Connor. That's awesome. And so, I, you know, basically my fifth or sixth match in my entire career. And I said, man, oh, man, it don't get any better. There's one learning, one learning opportunity I got. And so... I'm sitting there, and all of a sudden, I see O'Connor, uh, Race, and 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 Geigel over in the corner, pointing toward me, talking to Brown. I man, I must have really fucked up that match. <laughs> I must have really could have been pointing at me, you know, kind of making weird faces when they're talking about me. And, you know, you could hear your name being dropped every once in a while. So, mm-hmm. so I, man, what I did. But about that time, here comes Pat with with uh, with Geigel uh, by his side. They walk over. Come here, kid. We want to talk to you. You had a hell of a match this afternoon with, with Brown, and, and they said, "I said, well, thank you." I said, I, "You know, a great leader, blah blah blah, all that BS and everything." Said, well, tonight, as you know, you, you and I are scheduled. We're supposed to go about ten minutes, and you're you're going to drop the fall to me. He said, "But I've changed my mind. We thank you. We think you got some talent, and we'd like to you to think about us in the future here." So 
you go back to Oklahoma and get a few more months of experience, if you like, give us a call. We'd like to bring you up here. So not you, me and Pat, Pat said, you and I are going to go to Broadway. Wow. And I, what, <laughs> we're going to do what? You know, Broadway, for those folks that don't know, that's a time limit draw. So, yeah. you know, that's, that's as a rookie, man, that's the best you could do, you know, <laughs> especially against a former world champion like Pat O'Connor was, a legend like Pat O'Connor, a multi, multi-country legend from New Zealand. And so Pat and I went out, and he gave me the match of my life up to that time. I mean, you know, just listen to Pat, and Pat put me in and out of holds, put, put, put me in and out of stuff. I didn't even know what I was doing, you know. And, uh, and so we had a great match. You know, I was old with her, come back, and all the guys, Harley and uh, 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 Geigle, and, and all of them came over and pat me on the back, way to go, way to go, you know. And then the car going back to Oklahoma that night, I, I was the star of the car, you know, because oh, sure. and I still got my little thirty-five dollars for making out fifty dollars, whatever it was. Seven, I think it was up to seventy-five dollars then to to make that trip up there. And I was I was loaded. I had seventy-five dollars in my pocket, man, and got to go a Broadway with Pat O'Connor. And then after, as I was leaving, a guy came up to me and said, hey, man, we're serious. If, if you get down to Oklahoma and you, you run into a rut or something, you want to change scenes, or give us a call, and we'll, we'll be glad to take you up here. So that was the first door that ever opened. And, uh, you know, it was just through hard work and listen to a veteran in the ring you know, on how to do stuff. So I, I'm always grateful for that. I'm always grateful to Kansas City for that opportunity. Yeah, I mean – I, of course, Pat O'Connor was gone before I could uh, ever get to know him or meet him. I, I don't really have a lot of uh, firsthand knowledge of him, of course. So what was he like as a person? I mean, he was he was in there with Geigel and Harley as owners of that of that territory for a while. But, uh, man, his, his legend precedes him. He's, of course, got the O'Connor role, and uh, yeah. everyone knows who he is from that day. Well, he and, and, and man, he's he's a legend. I mean, that's the simplest way to put. But Pat O'Connor as a person, he was a hilarious man. I mean, he had a sense of humor. He had that old New Zealand sense of humor. He was an old country boy from New Zealand, but he he was an Olympian, and he you only know, had a lot of respect for me because I was I was trying to be a be a college wrestler too, and I just become a college wrestler. So we had that mutual respect, and but he was he was a very very bright man, very smart man, and he wouldn't have been in the promotional business. He wouldn't have been a partner up there, you know, especially being somebody from New Zealand, New Zealand, if he wasn't 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 intelligent. But Pat was very smart, and I, we, I, he liked to pull little little ribs on non hurtful ribs on guys all the time. I think that when when I when you and I talked about the ribs I used to pull on you, maybe that's where some of them even came from. Was right there in your home safety. But Pat, Pat and I, you know, he had I just committed the O'Connor roll up so when pat you know and pat got later got involved in st louis wrestling you know and uh, was one of the bookers and promoters over there with sam sure and so when i was coming up there you know we, we'd always have the tv meeting and pat had this same speech that he delivered word for word every tv you know all right guys you go out you got 10 minutes you know hit your time cue don't be looking straight into a camera you know blah 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 and uh, you know, don't do other people's finishes and all this stuff. All, all, all the old time rules. You know, Pat would go through them and everything. But he did had the O'Connor roll up. You know, that was that was that was that was Pat's big move there. So, mm-hmm. Pat, Pat, when when Pat would come down to Tampa, I was a smart ass by that time, and I'd had some experience. And imagine me being a smart ass country. <laughs> <laughs> 
It hasn't changed. But I, was, I was even the smart out to Pat O'Connor. So, uh, you know, he'd come down here and would do TV, and I'd take Pat aside, and I would give Pat the exact same speech that he would give me. <laughs> but down here, I said, it's not called the O'Connor roll-up, it's called the Briscoe roll-up, because I sold some of his material. Imagine that, too. You know, so I know the rest are still in some guy's home. What you do. But the only, there was no, no internet, nothing like that, so it's 15, 1,800 miles apart. Nobody knew who what back O'Connor was using up in Kansas City or up in Missouri, San Joe, Missouri. So I would use a roll-up. We have Gordon Soda. We called it the Briscoe roll-up. <laughs> so, so we Brian Blair. Yeah, everybody killer me, Brian Blair. Sure. Brian Blair got. We got Brian. He's in the business. He's getting booked in Kansas City. So my brother and I had to pull a rib on on uh, on uh, Geigel uh, on uh, O'Connor. We told Brian. He said when he starts telling you, ask you what kind of finish you want to do. Tell him to use a Briscoe roll-up. He won't know what the hell you're talking about, so he'll he'll know exactly who gave it to you, though. So, uh, he Brian went up there and he said, uh, O'Connor said, uh, you know, we'd like to use the uh, O'Connor roll, roll up. And Brian said, Excuse me, Mr. O'Connor, but isn't that the Briscoe roll up? And he said, Pat just uh, just rolled in the floor, laughed. No damn Briscoe, they're trying to get your trouble right away. So, uh, <laughs> but uh, that's the kind of friendship that we have. But I love Pat to death, to, still to this day. He is considered in my book as one of the all-time greatest wrestlers that ever stepped foot in our ring. That's that's high praise. Yeah. When you were in St. Joe, did you happen to run into and, and deal with Gus Karras at all? Oh yeah, I met Gus and what a what a, what a legendary figure that he was. You know, Gus was was the main main dog there. You sure. Know, and, uh, and so um, you know, I got to meet with him, set talk with him, and uh, you know, after my match with after my little. A little, uh, surprise match with O'Connor. He came over and we sat, and you know, he talked about it. He asked me questions, you know, he already knew the answer, but you know, he took the time out of a promoter's day, a busy, busy day doing TV and doing all the technical work and all, all the all the book work to come over and sit down and talk to me. I always had great, great amount of respect for those guys up there. Sure, sure. Um, I, just a, couple, a few more names here. Did you? What about, did you run into Sonny Myers? Did you do much with him? <laughs> oh, Sonny Myers still owes me $300. Does he? <laughs> yes, he does. And all of, uh, when I run into him, when I pass away, and I go down to that uh, that uh, that, uh, that big ring and, uh, and wherever that big ring's at, whether it's on the ground or in the sky, I'm like, hey, here, here's the deal. I, I bought I bought a remote control boat. I live out on a lake here in, in north of Tampa. So, okay. but uh, 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 Sonny had a, a hobby shop over in Lakeland, Florida. So, man, I was I was want I was wanting a boat. I was wanting a boat, a uh, little speed boat to go out and remote control and play with on the lake. You know, and just pass some time away. So, he said, "I'll get you one." So he got me one. I paid him paid him like uh, three hundred and fifty bucks for it, or whatever. But it was a plain white boat, you know, and I and I had Briscoe Brothers Body Shop plugged there for Briscoe Brothers Body Shop. So I had Briscoe Brothers Body Shop at the time. So I took it to my painter and I said, Man, I want a customized paint job on this boat. So when that little two hundred dollar boat, probably a hundred dollar boat, because the remote uh, the the tools to it was was the biggest cost. The electronics to it was the biggest cost. He put me a paint job on there, and I took it to, to Sonny, man, and Sonny, holy cow, I love that boat. I love that boat. He said, I could double your money for it, Briscoe. I said, okay, that'd be $600, right? And he said, yes. And so uh, I gave it to him because I wanted a bigger, faster boat. <laughs> Honestly, so... 
as usual, you know. So I gave it to him, and about a week after I gave it to him, Sonny closed the damn uh, hobby shop up and moved everything back to Kansas City. <laughs> so he left on me three hundred dollars, and man, I everybody that would pass through Kansas City, I would, I would, I would give a personal handwritten note. Make sure you give this to uh, to Sonny because I want my damn money, you know. <laughs> And of course, I'd run into him a couple of times and say, "Oh yeah, I'll give you right after payday, right after payday, right after, right after." And then you know, you got paid after matches up there in St. Louis and everywhere else, and back in those days. So, but I go to him. He always had it. He said, "Well, you know, I had to do this next time, next time." You know, I love Sonny because I used to travel with Sonny. Sonny is one of the funniest guys ever across in the business, too. He, you know, he was one of the greatest performers. He was the he was the the link in the match that all young guys needed. A referee that could know what was coming up, know what to anticipate, know everything about the match that you were working. And if you were smart enough, you always went to Sonny. Sonny, if I get lost out there, help me along. And Sonny loved that. So Sonny would always help coach me up like crazy, man. So I've become very, very close to Sonny Myers or like, like, like another, another brother to me. So I loved him having him to death, man. What was funny about him is he, he, he stiffed you on the boat because he was a true carny. He, he ran like a carnival. Yeah. He was a sheriff up here in the county. Yeah. He, he's got yeah. a, I mean, some he of the, did it all. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you ever heard, the, if you ever told you a story, but did he ever tell you a story about how he, uh, uh, one of his students uh, told us a story about how he, uh, he was sheriff in the county up there, North Kansas City, and they had purchased the county had purchased a bunch of trees to plant around the county, and uh, uh, somehow the the trees got stolen, and then years later, like someone went to like Sonny's house or whatever, and like there his house had all these beautiful trees planted <laughs> everywhere. <laughs> and well, Sonny Myers, were you right there? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Man, I, what a talent inside and outside the ring, you know. And then you know, as as, as a he would have made. Uh, he would have made a great booker. He would have made a great booker in, in the territory. I don't think he ever got that opportunity, you know, because Sonny didn't really want that in the later years. Sonny, was, like you said, Sonny was an entrepreneur. You know, he, he'd, he'd do different things. He'd open businesses up, and then they'd run for county offices. All used to ribbon. Man, what a crooked county. Because, you know, Kansas City politics has always kind of had a shady uh, shady background, you know, in <laughs> shady history. I used to. I used to rib Sonny all the time. You're carrying on that shady history, you know, the mafia and all that stuff in Kansas City. Oh, yeah. And you go to Kansas City, and Sonny would know every mafia member there and everybody you went to. Oh, tell this guy hello, but don't mess with him, man. He's, he's connected, you know. Well, his son, he's always taking care of you. Oh yeah, no, we we still have we're we're proud of that history, even though it's pretty, yeah, well, pretty I don't much blame you. <laughs> pretty much gone now. But yeah. they made us look real stupid in that movie Casino. The Kansas City's yeah. the one that blew the whole thing up. But um, the uh, and, and that guy I saw that you taught you uh, gave some thoughts after he passed away. But he was a big uh, prominent guy here in in Kansas City was uh, Butch Reed, um, and he yeah. he talk about a tough guy, dude. This this guy. Wow. Was a he was a huge strong dude, but he was also a, a, a basically a rodeo star as well. Yeah, and the, the, the butcher, the butcher, one of my friend, and I, I loved him to death. We traveled together down there in Florida, traveled to wherever we were together, and you know we, we had a lot, you know, a lot in common. College, he was a, football, a great football player too. Don't forget that, you know, yeah. he was an NFL football player. So we traveled together a lot. We 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 we, we drank a lot of a lot of. 
adult beverages together. But, you know, he was one of those guys. I always liked guys. Like, he was one of those guys that you knew not to mess with. You knew you could take so far, but you didn't want to go over that line. And he, he was a guy that liked to laugh, liked to rib, and liked, but he didn't like to be ribbed. But so you knew, just knew what the limit was you could, you could take, take butch. And, man, what a great guy to be with. And I'm one of the guys I'll, I'll remember the rest of my life. Him, him and Bob Geigel, I think, got sideways at one point. So when I was doing this documentary with Bob, uh, you know, 15 years ago, um, I, I didn't include Butch because I could tell. I was getting a lot of my yeah. source information from, from Geigel, and he, he wasn't – him and Butch were not seeing eye to eye at that point. So anyway, we had a big debut of this Central States documentary at Memorial Hall in Kansas City, Kansas. And uh, everyone's up on the stage and they're giving, you know, they're taking Q&A. And before it starts, I'm doing something and I turn around and there's Butch Reed. <laughs> and he goes, I wasn't invited to this, but I decided to show up anyway. And I'm like, sir, please get on the stage with everybody else. Like, I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to say yeah, no to him. going to turn him down now. Right? No, no. He was like 60-some years old at that point, but it didn't really matter because he was pretty yeah, intimidating. Yeah, he still go. Yeah. Um, what uh, and is one of his tag partners Rufus R. Jones, who of course is synonymous with Kansas oh, City, man. and he is a guy that uh, I mean, a lot of people say that he he's not a good wrestler or whatever, but uh, I mean, half of wrestling is uh, charisma, and this guy had a lot uh, of it. Oh, he had he had more than half charisma, man. He was three quarters of charisma, but you know the guy could go on the ring, you know. And Rufus R. He would. I got a story about Rufus Hart too, man. I, my driving and and, and hell, uh, one time up in Virginia. But Rufus R, I mean, I love the guy to death, and uh, you know, you can tell uh, Kansas City did really tight to me because I love all those guys up there. They were just all soft there. They were, you know, Oklahoma and Missouri and Kansas. Man, they, they're all they're all all those people rode from the same making, you know. So, uh, so I love them. But man, man. Rufus are in North Carolina. Rufus is making shots back and forth from uh, Carolina to to Kansas City and St. Louis. So one morning he got we got to get up. He, I got to get him up at like six o'clock in the morning. And of course, and I think we're in Norfolk, and uh, and boy, yeah, Norfolk was a party town, military town. Those military towns were always great to party and for the guys. So we partied all night long, closed the bar down. Rufus was a drinker and a half too, by the way. He, loved, loved it, <laughs> he did have a bar. Side. He didn't have a bar, a restaurant. Later. He, had, he had a bar, a bar, a restaurant, exactly. So. Yeah. So uh, I had at that time I was you know, young I was making some good money I had a little blue Mercedes convertible. So I said Rufus, uh, you need a ride to the airport in the morning. I said, sure do. So I said okay, well I'll, I'll get up and I'll, I'll take you over to the airport. Dude. Man, I sure appreciate it. So we got up in the morning and of course you're running late. We're running late. You know I don't know whether it's me or Rufus, but one of us is running late. And now we're looking at the clock, you know and. And that clock starting to tick toward the air, airport time. So, and and going to going to that Norfolk airport it wasn't Norfolk because I remember the road now. There's a real curvy road. Like I said, I had that little convertible. So I, we walked out. It was a nice morning. I put the top down near Rufus Joe and that fro, and I had the long hair and you know salt and pepper guy running down down the highway in this big Mercedes convertible. So, man, we get to the curvy part of it, and he like, man, we're running late. I said, okay. So I hit the gas, man. 
And I ain't trying to be racist or anything, but by, by the time we got to the airport, Rufus had turned white. His knuckles were white. He was holding on to me, holding on to the steering wheel, holding on to the door, holding on to the rear view mirror. Anything he could get a grip on, he had a grip on. Man, he cussed me and cussed me. And he said, I'll get you back for his prison. But I got you to the airport on time, didn't I? <laughs> Well, I, you you bring that you bring up driving, and the guy that always usually is on the other end of that instead of you in the driver's seat is usually Harley Race because he's talked about yeah. as the guy that can like, you know, he 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 would just the way I picture Harley in his prime is just going like you know a hundred miles per hour, smoking a cigarette, having like a six pack of beer there, and like not even flinching at anything. It, that's just how he is to me. That, that's the perfect description of him. Only the six pack was coin his legs. <laughs> he would hold say because he didn't want him else drinking his beer, you know. But nice. Harley, 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 if you, either if you were in the car with Harley or, or in another car with Harley coming back from a town, you better know where Harley's at at all times because if you don't, you're going to get a surprise bump on your back, back fender. <laughs> Yeah, he he uh, he's had quite a few good road stories uh, through the years that have been told. Legendary. Um, well, who McDaniel got even with them? You know, Harley was famous for the for the bumper bump, bump you know, and in the middle of the night, turn his lights off, come up bumper bumping. Well, who was down there? And then, this is back in the days where everybody had those big ass bands, those big conversion bands, sure, you know, CB or CB radios and all that stuff. So, so my brother and I were riding with Wahoo back from Fort Lauderdale. 265 miles in the middle of Florida, you know, the roads, old country roads that nobody's on except rassers usually, rassers, alligators, and rattlesnakes, you know. So we're on, on the road where we got that CB blast, and we're listening to Harley. We know Harley's behind us, you know, from, from a, 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 a contact. Is, we're listening to, you know, talking to the trucker, trying to figure out where all the cops are and mm-hmm. everything. So so finally we get on the US-60, a little, little country highway in the middle of Florida. So we're going along, we're going about probably 80, 90 mile an hour on that old long straight highway and not a sound. All of a sudden, we just feel something. You can just feel like it's like a NASCAR and, and another car coming up behind it starting to take the draft away from that van. You know, you can just feel the van starting to settle down. All of a sudden, but Wahoo, Wahoo, let me uh, digress a little bit in the story. Wahoo had been played victim of, of that bump and run so for like six months, said, I'm going to get that guy. So we had a guy over at the Tampa airport there uh, who worked with the body shop but did a lot of lighting for us. So Wahoo went over there, took a van over there to his body shop. We called the guy over and Wahoo said, now, you know, big lights that you see on the airplane when they're landing and taking off and they, you turn them on and they're bright. You can't already see. And the guy said, yeah, he said, I want two on the back of my, on my, on my van. <laughs> That's illegal. <laughs> I don't care if it's illegal. I want it on there. I'll pay you anything. So, of course, he talks the guy into doing it. So, now we're coming back from Waterdale, where the hell it is. We're on that 60. And we're going, man. We're going, like I said, we're going 80, 90 mile an hour. All of a sudden, you can just feel that van start to settle down where the draft is drafted. So you know somebody's behind it, and you know it's Harley behind you. So we're all bracing ourselves. You know, we don't know if we're going to get knocked off the road or anything or how many beers Harley had consumed at that time. So he gets up, and you feel it. You know, when the guy gets close, you can feel that draft. That van starts to sit down. And I and Wahoo said, listen to this, five, four, three, two, one. Now, he wants to see both CBs are on it. Wahoo hits those damn floodlights in the back of his van. 
all of a sudden you hear, I mean, you you, you hear Harley, and Harley ran off the damn road. Oh, God. <laughs> and so, of course, we stop and check, make sure he's not dead. He's got all of his vital signs and everything. So we get back to the bed and go. The next day, we're doing TV and, and damn beer. Or Harley comes in, pissed off, matter and hell. You know, he'd wrecked a rental car. You know? oh, yeah. <laughs> now he's having to pay for the debit on the rental car. And he's going, well, he was going to pay for part of it. Well, I ain't paying your damn big ass nothing. You know, it's your fault. You know, what do you know? Why they blinded him? Well, don't run around into me anymore. <laughs> and sure enough, Harley never ran into Wahoo McDaniels again. <laughs> 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 I guess you wouldn't after that. Jeez. Yeah. yeah. Oh, man. Um, I, I think both of these guys spent some time in Florida. I think this one started in Florida. And he, I, Mike George is a guy that he still yeah. lives up in Kansas City. He's still security for a casino up here. And he's still kicking. And um, I really enjoy Mike George talking with him. But I think he started in Florida and made his way up here. Did you have any dealings with him? Yeah, Mike, Mike, uh, Mike, uh, I was in Carolina what time Mike was down here. My brother had more, uh, more dealing with him, but I, you know, of course I worked up there in Kansas City a lot. And I, even when I was in Carolina, they'd bring me down and work. I'd work down there in, in Florida a lot too. So I got to be friends with Mike, road partner with Mike. We, we always had a great time together, but what a storyteller he is too. If you ever get an hour and a half to sit down with him, man, he'll entertain the hell out of it. Oh, he is. He is. And, and, and another guy I didn't get to talk to for my documentary I did, but, um, I've, I've talked to his son a few times was Danny little bear, Danny little bear. Danny's a guy that kind of, <laughs> Danny was a strange dude. Let me tell you, was he? I mean, Danny was one of the guys that used to trade knowledge with me when I was setting up the ring. That's how far I went back with Danny. Just like buddy coat, you know, Okay. Those two guys there in gorgeous Georgia, those those guys there I probably have more memories with and you know, I I traveled with Danny, guy's Native American, he was Native American, so I traveled with him a lot and we, we went around around the country together. Danny was one of those uh journeyman guys that underappreciated at that time and went around from territory to territory. But Danny was a big star in his heyday, but that heyday didn't last long because Danny had too many bad habits <laughs> that he couldn't shake all the time. Too. Yeah. And his reputation always followed him around. But what a good, great guy. And what a, he'll go down as one, to me as one of my, my best teachers when I, when I was beginning in the business. I had nothing but respect for the guy. Wow. Yeah, no, I, I don't, I don't have, you know, I don't have a lot on him as in what, except what you said, you know, Geigel coming from a promoter's perspective, always brought up the bad habits. So I never, uh, but he was like a huge baby face in central States, you know, I mean, yeah. that's why, uh, you know, so many people want to know more about him, but there just yeah. isn't a lot out there. Yeah. Well, there isn't a lot out there, you know, and then, and, and, you know, I, I, I don't even want to share a little bit of the, <laughs> the negative stuff that I, that I know about Danny, sure. but uh, you know, I, I, all I can share with is my positive relationship with him. And I, I had nothing but positive with him. He was another guy that would, you know, it kind of, when I was starting, I mean, I, I you know, 185 pounds, 175, 190, you know, I was, I was small. So I had these big pros always trying to take advantage of me. But Danny and Danny Hodge, the two Dannys, would always enlighten me on, on what's this guy here. You know, he he thinks he's tough. He might try to go out and do it. If you feel him, get tough. And I and tell you the truth, country, I didn't really know what stiff was back in those days because I come from college wrestling, you know, and uh, – and stiff was stiff. Yeah, you know? yeah, sure, sure. And so when he got to get stiff, like sometimes I just think I, I was wrestling. They were wrestling me hard, man. So 
I get back and either Danny Little Bear or Danny Hodge would grab me and say, hey, you let that guy take advantage of you. And, uh, you, know, you know, don't let these guys out wrestle you. So uh, they, both of them, both of them, uh, Little Bear and, and Hodge were, were responsible for me being a sippy in the ring most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, uh, yeah. That, thank you for your, your information on that, because I just I didn't I I figured you with the connection of your uh, Native American background, you probably yeah. knew who he was. Yeah. Um, a, a couple other things. The uh, I always like to bring up the fact that St. Joe was the midget capital of the world. <laughs> Lord Littlebrook, and yeah. yeah, Lord Littlebrook, and one of his sons is still around. It goes by Little right. Cato, uh, but uh, Lord Littlebrook, Little Tokyo, all those guys. I, I don't think so many. Nowadays, you don't really see midget matches anymore involved in wrestling much anymore. Anyway, but did back in your day when you were, you know, with your brother and traveling around, did you have a lot of interaction with these guys? Because Kansas City was ba- Lord Littlebrook was basically the 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 wrangler, much like Moolah was for the females. Oh, Moolah, he was the Moolah of the little guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Little people there. Yeah, uh, I, I always I had a lot of dealings with uh, with Roger, a lot of dealings with him, and I. You know, of course, traveling around the country, they were they were an attraction, and man, they were a great attraction when they were back in the in the early seventies and eighties when when I was just getting rolling in the, in the business, and they were a great attraction. And of course, you get 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 the good guys. You always had to go through uh, Roger Lilberg to uh, to get the guys, and he would book them, and then he would take care of the office and everything. But yeah, I, I ran into you know. Um, Jamaica kid, little Jamaica, Australia. I spent uh, three months over in Australia with him and a couple other guys over there. I always had a ball with those guys. I mean, they were they were just like you and me. They liked to have fun. They liked to like to drink the, the the beverages and 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 feel good, you know. And so, I always had a ball with them. They all they, they just talk knowledge with them. But they they had a nomadic life, you know, that I don't know if I could have survived the business the way they had to do. Because, like I said, they were attraction. A promotion would call them, depending upon on the size of the promotion. They come in one one or two weeks, you know, Carolina being such a big territory. Sometimes they'd stretch it out for three weeks there because they had three towns running. And Crockett would want to get his money for, for all three towns. So. He, he would book them for a longer tour. But Florida, you know, being a small territory, they were usually in for for seven to 10 days. And then, then they would go. So you ran into these guys all over the country, you know, and that, that was back in the time where, where a lot of the talent was getting lucky and getting over on, on different TVs and going to different territories. So you'd run into those guys and, you know, the guys that we mentioned, they, they were, they were always some of my best friends, you know, and, 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 and I like to travel with them and like to drink beer with them because they were a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, the, I love talking with his son about uh, about the past, and his his son Bobby uh, worked for us with a company that we had running here for a couple of years called the National Wrestling League, and uh, it was a blip on the radar. But people around Kansas City know about it pretty well. That it was about five six years ago we had this this touring company, and the reason why I bring that up is there was a guy there that I had never met before, but I think you had recruited him because, of course, with your amateur background and being a long time sort of scout recruit for the WWE, you had check this guy out uh his his real name is sam udell oh sammy yeah i love sam what what a what a personality sam i I know so he had been through one of my biggest disappointments that that they didn't make it through and it wasn't through any fault of him it was just a numbers game at that time and and the numbers caught up with it but what a great talent what a great I, i when i saw him in college you know you know 
you can look at a guy. People, what do you look for when you go scout these college guys? Well, you don't really know. There's no book to tell you. Know, you of course, you look for size. Now, one is him, six foot two, six three, whatever he's he was, big, yeah, you know, two sixty five, and a big boy. So, and I noticed the crowd that that he would always have around him, and I noticed he was always talking and always had a smile on his face and always always had a crowd and and entertaining people. And so I, I, I approached his coach, and the coach told me what a, what a good personality guy he has. So I, I put, the, put, the, put the recruit on, on Sam, and then brought him down here to Florida and perceived uh, Kern, see Kern, Dusty Road. All of Dusty loved him because Sam, Sam actually got a job over his promo skills. He was that good in promos. You yes. know? And then, and then, then for un, un, some unknown reason, you know, I had a change of management down here, and the, his promo skills kind of got overlooked. And, he was like a lot of amateurs had a had a tough time in the beginning adjusting to pro work and then so, but his promos would knock him out every time and he'd have, what well, I forgot what his what his little saying was but he you know step it up I think step it up in that it or something like that I don't know what it was in NXT uh, he he had several with the company we had but it wasn't the same that that, that he had down yeah. there but whatever it was man that the car uh, crowd would be chanting you know what are you going to well, what a good guy. I love Sam to death, and I wish he would have made it here. But, you know, everybody don't make it here. But he he stuck with the business, which I was really happy with. I know he went out of Colorado and become Western States champion out there, went a couple other places and became their champion. So the guy has skill and has talent. And anybody listening to this ever see Sam out there, man, go see him, man, and tell him he enjoys work because the guy works his butt off. He moved back to Kansas City recently, so I'll get to see him more uh, because he, he worked here. He moved here from Colorado, then he moved back and started working with uh, Ring of Honor and NWA oh. now again. But he's back in Kansas City. But, dude, guy has the total package, really. Amateur yeah. background, good-looking guy, big guy. Good-looking guy, yeah. Uh, but I, I just think it's it says a lot because you became, like, b- with your background, you obviously became one of the biggest names in uh, finding these uh, great athletes to come through the ranks of professional wrestling. And so all these well, – so many guys have their stamp of Jerry Briscoe approval on them. They're my Briscoe boys, man. I, they're they're all proud of that, and I'm proud of all those guys that call themselves the Briscoe boys. You know, it is one of the, one of the beginning ones. Yeah, totally. And my final thing, I, I not to end on a horrible note here, but uh, were you in Kansas City when Owen Hart had his accident? Unfortunately, I was, and uh, it was one of the most dreadful nights I ever ever had in my life. And uh, I, I I I have visualized that so many times, just out of the blue, sometimes, and it, it's uh it's a horror. It's a horrible sight and horrible thought. The, know, so. the Kemper Arena has been changed over to sort of a. They took that and, and renamed it and made it sort of a two levels, and it's like a high school uh, basketball sort of soccer venue inside now. Um, but it's it's you know it's so synonymous with Kansas City, and we're coming up on the, what is it twenty four years, which is so wow. amazing. Has been that long. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, that's unfortunately a uh, bad mark in Kansas City, but I was there that night as well. I was about to start full-time with the company, and um, it's just uh, so many people still would say that they would see ghosts that work there. They would see them in, in the rafters. You know, they'd see something or something. Yeah. And it's become such a legend here. Um, but, I mean, yeah, I didn't know if you were actually on the on, on, on that trip, but, man, it was. Yeah, I, I was the one that Vince had me make the call, you know, after, after meeting with Kevin and and Vance, uh, what are we going to do with the show to continue? So I, I had to be the, the bearer of bad news and go to the talents and 
and tell them. Some of them took it like you would expect them to take it. Oh, why do we have to do this? The other others took it. Uh, you know, okay, we'll we'll do it for one. You know, but uh, you know, it, it was a tough night on everybody, everybody involved, including the fans. You know, so um, you know, what a horrible, 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 horrible memory there. But Kemper Arena was was a great arena. You know, all all, all that aside, and Kemper Arena was a great great atmosphere and great fans and fans close enough where you could hear the reaction of the fans all the time. So. I, I got a lot of pleasant memories, even though the one that is stained, you know, by one on Of course. Falling. Of course. But I got a, got a lot of great memories at Kemper. Yeah. I know you're coming to I know you're coming over to St. Louis soon. Uh aren't you getting are you are you being part of uh Herb Simmons uh St. Louis wrestling here coming up soon, aren't you? Yeah, I'm thrilled to death. I'm finally making that St. Louis wrestling hall of fame, you know, and I you know, It's I about time. Yeah, it's about time. That's what I told Herb, you know, and he's well, you know, we'll wait for the good people, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, but you know, growing up and everything, if you, once you once you made that St. Louis, once you made St. Louis TV, once you wrestled at the Chase, you you you're made. I mean, Sam St. Louis had that much respect as a promotion because people knew that, that Sam Machik and, and uh, Geigel and, and Pat and those guys would only bring the top guys in from all over the United States. And that's what was so cool about it because, you know, there were guys from everywhere, from every territory, AWA, Vern's guys, you know, they're everywhere, they're guys from everywhere coming in. So, and they were the top guys in the nation. And you knew if once you got in that loop there that you you were known and it was pretty easy to, to go wherever you wanted to go. So always credit that St. Louis as being a stepping stone to, to bigger things that happened to me later on in my career. Yeah, no. Well, I hope I hope to see you in Cauliflower Alley. I don't know if you plan on going anytime soon, but I usually try to make it out there every year in, in Vegas. Yeah, well, not only Cauliflower Alley, you need to make it over to Waterloo, Iowa, with the Dan Gable Museum over there. That's awesome, too. Great yeah. We have a great, great, great event over there. It's July 20, uh, 21, 20, 21, 22 this year, so. It's a it's a great deal. Uh, we're you know we're trying to trying to catch uh, our sister uh, sorority or fraternity or whatever the hell it is. Uh, see see Cauliflower Alley. There was a tremendous organization over fifty sixty years in in existence. There, we're just trying to catch up with them and offer the people out in our neck of the woods at Iowa neck of the woods uh, an alternative. Uh, to go and have some fun and meet some legendary wrestlers. Oh yeah, you're always out there in Iowa as well. So you're a big supporter of that. I know. Well, Jerry, yeah, well, I, I've been lucky. I've been I've been named. I'm I'm, I'm chairman of their their executive committee for professional wrestling there. So, oh, cool. Yeah, you know, Dan Gable had a lot of trust and a lot of faith in me. I was in the, the Stillwater National Wrestling Hall of Fame, who who parents over over the, the Dan Gable Museum there. So, wow. I feel honored by by being named in that position there because it's such a it's such a unique. Uh, unique uh museum uh, one of the few in the world that has both professional has mma and has college wrestling and, and olympic wrestling all under the same roof there so it's an experience the exhibits out there are fantastic the staff out there coach miller and uh, rebecca uh roper uh who's office manager they do a tremendous job getting everything ready and prepping it and they love professional wrestling like just like it's their their home sport there so they treat all the fans fantastic we're a family out there drop by and see us july 20 21 22 23 something like that in, in waterloo Iowa. we won't regret it 
worth the drive, as you say. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, I mean, it's you're an easy choice. I mean, you go from like uh, amateur background to like you and your brother doing what you did in pro wrestling. Then, then you go on to have a you know as as one of the Stooges for years, and then you're a recruiter, <laughs> and now you're you're doing your podcast. I mean, you are truly a lifelong wrestling guy, man. And uh, I'm glad to know you. I'm glad that I got to meet you 20 some years ago, and uh, and I'm really happy you were able to do this. So thank you very much, Jerry. Well, thank you, country, and we had a great story with you. Uh, you know, you 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 were the guy that hurt all all your co-writers all the time because you're so damn big. And don't hurt them, country, old Bruce Pritchard. You know, he, yeah. he, he's the one that brought you and I together. I think he was he was your your, your friend before I was. Oh well, uh, yeah, no, well, Bruce was unfortunately had to work with me on the writing team, and then yeah, and then I met you through Bruce. So that okay. was uh, that was what we had. A, we had a good time one before I got uh, thrown yeah. out, but it was yeah. uh, it was fun. <laughs> It was fun during that time. Uh, all right, man. Well, it was a pleasure being on there with you and sharing some of these old stories, man. Anytime I can be a help, uh, especially my, my friends and family out there in, the, in that Midwestern United States or heartland of America, brother. Yeah, thank you very much, Jerry. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. It's the worst territory. All right. Welcome back to the worst territory in the world. Chris, what a great interview. I mean, when you think about some of the people that we've scored – over or you've scored actually over the last you know the existence of this show it doesn't get a lot more i don't know royalty if you will than gerald briscoe so what a great interview with gerald briscoe man i was really happy to reconnect with him he's such a good dude i mean he's like carefree and like i mean i've always thought like this guy has everything because he uh he's like seen it all done it all Everyone knows who he is. He's such a good talent scout. And at the age of whatever he is now, 76, 77, he could still whip the crap out of yeah. 90% of the world. So, like, yeah. um, you know, we didn't talk about it on there. But uh, when I was there as, like, a 19-year-old, he would uh, – him and Bruce would rib me big time, and which included getting put into a chicken wing by Gerald Briscoe multiple times, which – I mean, you can't get out of a chicken wing from like your next door neighbor, let alone, uh, you know, a world-class amateur wrestler like Gerald Briscoe. So um, he just, I always thought, you know, the guys that can just, you know, whip your ass, they don't really talk trash because they just sort of sit back and laugh, you know, because that's how he is. He's always in a good mood because he knows he can whip your ass. And, the, yeah. you know, Kurt Angle, Brock Lesnar, they're not big talkers, you know, they don't, they, cause they, they know. Uh, it's the ones that talk that, you know, are like, I, I, you probably are not as strong as you are because, uh, you know, you, I know the guys that could whip my ass and they don't talk the way you do. Right. So, <laughs> right. Briscoe, uh, he's, he is so awesome. And I want to thank him again for coming on. Uh, he mentioned a couple things there. He mentioned he's going to be at, um, I do want to put over the, the big St. Louis uh, on May 13th. They're having that big St. Louis uh, mm -hmm. sort of, fan fest over there with herb simmons is putting that together and i got to give him credit man he's put together like 40 plus guys over there including including our old pal well gerald briscoe will be there jbl bunch of people but rip rogers will be there so you can go over there and he can play to f off uh and so there's, plenty of stuff. there's a lot of cool names over there so if you're in st louis that weekend that's a really fun that'll that's as close as you're going to get in the midwest to seeing that big of a fan fest but um should we try to go next year if he does it next year should we try to have a booth there no i don't i, I don't know i didn't come on chris is, let's go on the road I, again me and I you like, uh, i don't know if this is going to be a yearly thing i don't know but uh maybe maybe i guess uh 
But uh, the other thing you mentioned there is a guy that I want to talk to soon is he brought up Dak Draper, yeah. uh, also known as Sam Udell is his real name. And uh, I wanted to ask Jerry about him because I had always heard that he was a huge fan of Dak Draper's uh, when he was in college. And he did, as you heard him say, he recruited him and brought him and he didn't really understand why it didn't work out because he had it all. And uh, I, it was nice to hear him put over uh, Sam because he is a, he's a great guy, great wrestler. He's got pretty much everything you want in a wrestler. So I don't understand why he's still, uh, not on the main roster somewhere, but hopefully he'll get that opportunity. He will. To be a big company again. He will. I mean, the I guy. I, I. I mean, the the only problem with Sam right now is, is he? Have you seen him lately? Terrible shape. Doesn't work out. Zero <laughs> percent body fat. Yeah. Yeah. Ne- ne- never hits the gym. I mean, I'm I'm worried about you, Sam. I know you listen to this podcast. I'm worried about you. Call me. I'll give you some tips on on getting back in the gym. Um, so who who are some of the people that we have coming up or some of the topics? I know we want to do a lot of NWL stuff. Sure. Um, I would, you know, I haven't discussed this with you. I would like to really do a full episode, um, maybe about, like you said, a pay-per-view that you was really uh, different for you working in the WWE, things like that. Because although it's not about the worst territory, but you're a part of the worst territory in the world. So Sure, sure. I'm a Kansas City representative on the writing team. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, no, like uh, NWL, of course, Metro Endless. Pro. We haven't really touched much on Metro Pro, which is yeah. you know, 2010 to 16. Um, the, uh, sort of the era, the other guys like the, we've mentioned Trevor Murdoch and, and Bull Schmidt and uh, some other guys that sort of came up through Harley that were in this area in the Midwest doing Indies in the nineties, uh, early two thousands. Uh, that's sort of a period that sort of, I feel like it's sort of overlooked, you know, uh, during the, the whole attitude era, the indie scene was still, was like, just blew up. Yeah, and Harley, Harley moving to Eldon, Missouri and having what he had. I know we've had several Harley guests on, but there's still plenty of guys that are still out there that can have a unique perspective on just working in the central states area at that time. Uh, but, you know, of course, there's still some older guys out there that that uh, are still kicking that, um, you know, uh, another guy that I talked to that doesn't have a long history, but uh, is Tommy Dreamer. Um, I've, I've, he wants, he's going to come on at some point. And of course, ECW did have a couple shows in Kansas city before they closed down. I would um, love to talk about those shows at I the think Uptown. Strider, uh, went to one of them at the Uptown theater and, uh, yeah, it was, uh, you know, and, and Tom, Tommy dreamer is a huge, uh, wrestling historian. So of course he yeah. knows everything that went down here through the years. So he's just a fun guy to talk wrestling with anyway. He's another lifer that uh, knows a ton about it. So, you know, there's just some, you know, when we first started this game, like, you know, I think a lot of people, including myself a little bit was like, who are we going to talk to? Like, we're going to talk to like uh, guys that wrestled here in the seventies and sixties. Cause a lot of those guys are a lot Not of them are us. dead. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. so I'm like, uh, you know, but there's just so many guys that are still out there that even if they just had a cup of coffee here, they have a really unique perspective. Like you heard Jerry Briscoe, he had a unique perspective on Kansas city, what Kansas city meant to him young in his career. And, uh, you know, just this, this whole area, uh, obviously headlined by Harley and Pat O'Connor and Bob Geigel. So, um, they, if, if only they had a few moments with them, that's enough for me to be interested in like that time as well as their career. So there's just an unlimited amount of people that we want to talk to on here, but, uh, I'm looking forward to, I, I do want to thank, uh, Rip Rogers and Jerry Briscoe again, because they've, they've been two of the uh, most fun interviews to do to date. I, you know, when we first started this podcast, I saw an end, right? I was like, okay, 
we're going to hammer out some episodes about the NWL. We'll do this arc about, okay, this is the beginning of the NWL, middle, end. And then we're going to do some central state stuff. And then, you know, we'll probably sail off into the sunset. And with the growth of the podcast, I'm like, okay, who can we get on next? You know, because, you know, thank you all so much, by the way. The the response to the podcast has been actually uh, a little bit crazy for me. Um, but it's really made me appreciate all of you guys. So don't forget to hit the five star, uh, you know, give us a rating on whatever podcasting platform you're, you're on, do that right now, help us out. Um, also go interact with us on Facebook, uh, give us a, a subscribe on YouTube and, uh, yeah, wherever we're available, just, you know, give us some love and some support and we'll keep uh, putting out the content. So Chris, we've come to the final segment of the show where we put you in the hot seat and ask you maybe some uh, some fun I feel questions. Like I've done that already on this show, but yeah, go ahead. Hey, we have uh, this week. Your menu is you only have two items on the menu. You can pick legacy, or we can do the always fun Mount Rushmore. Um, let's do legacy. Okay. So when you think about your legacy in the pro wrestling business, Chris, what three matches or three angles did you write and or slash book? It could be for Metro Pro, NWL, or WWE that you are most proud of. Oh, man. If you said just like they're the most uh, well-known, I could have answered that real easy. Most proud of? Um, uh, man, that's tough. I mean, NWL uh, – NWL would have to be, I don't know, crowning the first champ, Dak Draper. I mean, that whole ride was cool. Um, you know, that NWL was such more of a storyline driven thing. Like we mm-hmm. had really good matches there, but it wasn't necessarily like uh it was so episodic that it was a little different than, you know, what you're sort of used to in a day, which is like just big match, one off type things. Um, you know, I in Metro Pro, uh the blow off match with Strider and Wyatt where uh Strider mm-hmm. was like knocked unconscious in the back and and he had done everything and then I would go back there after the match is over and he's getting his uh, face like wiped by his wife because he's bleeding everywhere and she's crying and I'm in deep trouble with her and like he's like uh, <laughs> he's like, I'm so sorry I didn't get to do that table spot. And I'm like, dude, you did that table spot, you know, and like he's like, Oh, okay, you know, yeah, I mean he was knocked silly. Uh, but that was a culmination, and that's just an example of Strider and Wyatt who will put their body on the line like at an independent level just to make a, a good show. I mean, the, the, those two are such uh, students of the game and so loving of wrestling that it, obviously it's no shock that Strider still promotes wrestling today and Wyatt is still going strong. Um, and in WWE, I mean, I'm most known uh, for being associated with the Katie Vick angle because it's so hilariously horrible that, you know, people, um, when I say that it doesn't matter what age they know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, like I I did not write a necrophilia angle and no one in the writer's room did that was done day of by Stephanie and triple H, uh, basically on their own. Brian Gewirtz was involved, but like, as far as like the writing team, that is not how anything was discussed. Uh, but it is very memorable in a horrible way. So, uh, something else I was involved in that was uh, I like sort of the big moments. That was when the Billy and Chuck wedding uh, was a big moment. And that's when oh, yeah. Eric Joff had the big reveal when he was underneath that makeup, which was really fun because he was in that makeup and the prosthetic face like all day. 
and he was actually going around and hey how are you i'm you know minister bob or whatever the hell his name was and uh he was actually just screwing with people uh, <laughs> and no one could really tell that it was like fake makeup that's how good of a wow. job that was so um and then you know the which and in another angle that could never be done today when billy and chuck uh, go all the way to the altar, and then for some reason it, it took them that long to exclaim that, oh, they're not really gay. Uh, that was uh, that was something that obviously could not be done today. But at the time, uh, it was uh, it was it was a huge like event for SmackDown. You know, yeah. that's what it was. They wanted SmackDown was pretty new, and they wanted um, sort of like a sweeps, you know, sweeps week type big moment, and that right. was it. Uh, you know, th- those are. I can't say I'm the most proud of that by any means, but it was, uh, you know, it was something that people remember from that era. Uh, but man, there was just so many great matches when I was in WWE. I mean, that, that had nothing to do with me as far as like their in ring stuff. They're just, uh, you know, the, the greatest match that I've ever been to. And I've told hoodie this a million times was when I was about to start my official job. Well, I'd already, 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 I had already worked at WWF and I was in Kansas city uh, October of 97, the first Hell in the Cell with Shawn Michaels and Undertaker. That was the greatest match I've ever seen live. So, yeah. um, you know, until damn Mick Foley ruined it forever. But, uh, <laughs> but that, that was probably mine. The, ni- the nicest guy, apparently, in the history of pro wrestling, Mick Foley. Um, yeah, I would say, like, <laughs> would I say would what? say probably my, you know, obviously, I don't know what you wrote in, in WWE, but I'm just going to say strictly NWL. I mean, the Blaine Meeks, Dak Draper stuff is hard to beat because, yeah. because it was so well, like, orchestrated. And I remember, I remember this. I remember when Dak took the, <laughs> Dak's going to hate me for saying this. When Dak took the chair to the leg of Blaine Meeks and yeah, that, that, that was interesting. But the reaction of the there was some people in the audience that truly believed Dag Draper had hurt Blaine Meeks. That's and we were in the two thousand high two thousand you know sixteen yeah, two thousand sixteen seventeen yeah yeah and people were still like I mean I remember fans being upset that that they were worried about you know some of the younger fans of course but some of the older fans too were genuinely worried about Blaine Meeks's knee. Yeah, man, that's the kind of stuff I just, I miss that kind of feeling of people, you know, getting invested enough into it. I mean, obviously at this point, none of us are stupid. We all know it's not real, especially when you're over the age of 10 or whatever. But I I still, there's still moments in wrestling that uh, when it takes you out of reality and you're sort of emotionally uh, invested in it to that degree, it's, I, I miss those. I feel like that's less and less of that. And I don't think it's something that's, lost forever I, I don't think even with the knowledge of kayfabe being dead i still think you can elicit that kind of emotional response yeah. to a degree that we do not even attempt in this point in wrestling now um and again it doesn't always have to be something racial or something like that it can be just something that some kind of vulnerability that someone shows uh you know but it, you know that's just again something else that's not really around anymore is showing weakness and vulnerability um you know because that's the kind of that, that was what we were doing with that angle where you you basically are showing uh you know the the fact that he he was sort of a nerd and he was yeah you know he was uh getting picked on or whatever um you know that but it's bullying now so i, I don't think we can do that but yeah god isn't that crazy the world has changed so dramatically 
Um, anyways, Chris, well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. And guys, I, I, I'm, I got a little reveal here. We, I, I made a bet with Chris and that he hasn't actually signed off on yet, but if we can get to 1500 subscribers or followers on our Facebook page, I will persuade Chris to come out with our first t-shirt, which you will be able to buy. So do us a favor, spread the word, especially on Facebook, give us, get us to that 1500 uh, likes and uh, I am going to make Chris and uh, we will have our first official shirt. So let's get let's get the army mobilized here and uh, tell your friends about the podcast. And again, we appreciate all the love and support. Chris, it's been a fun show. Hopefully we'll uh, we'll do this again next week mm-hmm. and where we will have the best time talking about the worst territory in the world. For Chris Goff, I'm Gabe Miller. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. It's the worst territory.